Uh, last time, which was a couple weeks ago, when we started this, we started. We almost got through the first two verses, so I'll do a quick recap. We won't do all the sidebars that we got into. Uh, but Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'll read the first five verses. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So as we mentioned last time, when Paul writes, when he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, keep in mind that what he's talking about there is... Uh, him struggling in prayer for them, the idea really being more wrestling in prayer. He, it wasn't like he was having a hard time praying for them, uh, but that he was earnestly uh, praying for their growth as believers. Uh, as mentioned here, he's not met them, uh, but he has a great concern uh, for their growth because he understands what they're up against um, as far as various false doctrines that have kind of been influencing them and maybe perhaps uh, uh, causing them to maybe stray a little bit from the truth of the gospel. And so that's why he says that in verse 2, because again, he's talking about how he prays for them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. So we spent some time on this, but remember that when the Bible uses the word heart and it's using it in this way, it really is speaking of the emotions, the will, and the mind. All three of those things are included. Um, so it's, it's not how we use the word heart, where the primary emphasis is on emotions. Actually, the primary emphasis with that is the mind. Um, it doesn't exclude the others, uh, but the idea is, is that uh, just in, when it comes to our growth as believers anyway, we do need to remember that the Word of God always feeds the whole man. Um, so it's our intellect, uh, it affects the will, and then the last thing, in a sense, uh, to be affected is our, is, our, uh, is our emotions. So, in other words, if you are a, a believer who's growing in patience, um, you may have an intellectual understanding, you will have an intellectual understanding first that you are to be patient, and that will often come way before you actually experience patience. Um, you, you may gain more control of your actions, so your will is engaged, and you will act more patient, but you may still feel impatient inside. And then eventually what will happen is then uh, you will actually feel patience. In other words, when you're in a situation, whether it's stress or what have you, uh, the whole man is involved in exercising of patience, and you're no longer struggling against what's going on in your mind. You're kind of in tune with the whole situation. Uh, it doesn't always go that way, but that's kind of the idea. Um, of how we grow and how we change um, as believers. Uh, that's why we know, again, that, as we've said before, and I always have to say this a lot because people think I'm against emotions, and I'm not, uh, but we don't live by our emotions, but the, res the, uh, the response to that, or understanding of that, is not that we are to have no emotions. That's not the right uh, stance. Emotions really are very important, but they're not primary, um, especially when it comes to discerning the will of the Lord uh, when it comes to our motivations, uh, our emotions can help with those things, 
uh, but we're driven by our understanding uh, of what the Word of God has to say. Uh, and that is really by design by the Lord because that's the way that he made us and the way that he created us. So here he wants uh, their hearts, meaning their minds, their intellect, their will, and their emotions to be encouraged. Uh, he wants them also to understand that as a body of believers, he wants them to be knit together in love. The idea is brought together. Now remember that we've mentioned this many times before, especially when I was going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning, that the church was a, it, it was a very unique idea uh, in the days of the early church. Remember, religions didn't do what the church did. Uh, most of the time when it came to the pagan religions, your only concern was being involved in certain rituals. And it was those rituals that would involve you. Um, there was no teaching on morality. Uh, there was no teaching on relationships. There was no teaching about having a relationship with, with whatever God that you were uh, worshiping. Uh, sometimes th th there was a goal to, I guess, gain an ecstatic union with that uh, God uh, for a short period of time, but uh, it, it was pretty vague as far as what it was supposed to do, other than maybe make you feel good or what have you. There were, again, there was no substance to it. Uh, so early on in the synagogues, that's why you would have sometimes, especially in, in, in many of the Gentile cities, Gentiles would come and they would visit the synagogue on the Sabbath day uh, because they were intrigued with the teaching that went on in the synagogue because no other religion had that. And they were always uh, very interested in that and saw the great value in it. So the early church, uh, a great deal of the, how the church service was structured was very similar to the synagogue. And so there'd be the, the singing of hymns and there would be the reading of scripture and then exposition on the scripture. And again, it would be, it would be teaching. Uh, uh, moral teaching. When I say moral, I don't mean moralistic, but it would be moral teaching on daily living, the expectations of God, as well as what God has done for us, what God has said, uh, what God desires us to do, all those kinds of things. And so, at the same time, many of the pagan religions could be, in a sense, exclusive as to who would be involved in the various ceremonies that they would have. There would be a lot of at times, prejudice would be involved um, as far as, you know, they would have the in-group, that kind of thing, where the church was very different. You would have individuals who were rich, those who were slave owners, those who were slaves, and everybody in between all meeting together, and they were all basically there on equal footing uh, in the sense that they were all brothers and sisters in the Lord. They made up one family, and there was this unity that was expected, that was brought about by the Lord, but also was expected of them in their behavior. And that was, that, again, that was an unusual thing. The people in the city, they didn't have that. Uh, in those days, again, most of the population would be sharply divided between the rich, which were usually very, very rich, and then the very, very poor. There was no middle class, really not much in between. Um, and so the idea of people being on the same level religiously or because of religion and not because of status, which could be by birth, political power, money, what have you, um, was very unusual, that, that people would get along and actually enjoy spending time together uh, and doing all that. was just an unusual thing. And so when Paul talks about them being knit together in love, he is praying for that because he knows that the pull of society was not in favor of that taking place. Um, 
There are some countries today that would still have that problem. If you were to be in a church in India, even though they officially got rid of um, the various sects that they have, they still follow that. You have the four main groups. Uh, the Brahmin, I think, are the highest group. And um, you are, whatever status you're born in, you're stuck in for the rest of your life. And so when it comes to even getting jobs, that job is available for certain individuals of a certain class only. And so if you are of a lower class, don't even bother applying. You're, you're not going to be hired. At the same time, there are jobs that are uh, reserved for those of a certain class. And if you are a higher class, you would not even bother to do it or apply because that's below you. Um, and so you have, again, the very, very, very poor and then the, the, three other, the three other ones, the Brahman being the highest. So when they have church, we think nothing of everyone coming together. We never think about that we are different based on our incomes or maybe our political connections or what have you because we've been accustomed to that our entire life. And the church has been established that way going back hundreds of years. But imagine a country like India where you are born and raised in a system that if you are the top class, you truly never even engage in a conversation with those of the lower class unless absolutely you have to. And even then you might use a mediator uh, because you just don't have connection with them. And they'd be told that you're going to sit next to each other and worship God? I don't think so. Uh, but that does take place. Uh, but there are obstacles that um, some of those, some churches in certain cultures, and India is the, is the easiest one to think of, where that is a, that's a real issue and people being able to come together. When I was in South Africa, same thing. Um, there were the, I'm trying to think of how they, how they designated themselves. There were the Afrikaners, and then there were the blacks. They were both black, but there was a difference. And within that difference, um, there was no association between the two groups for various reasons, uh, because one was considered to be lower, uh, whether they viewed them as being dumb or what have you. I'm not sure of all the intricacies with that. Uh, but now they were doing a pretty good job of overcoming that uh, in the church of, of the unity that they were supposed to have. Um, and then if they had whites in the church, I don't know what it was like before apartheid uh, ended, because I'm not familiar with the details. I do know that there were some struggles there. Um, and so in a lot of these different countries where they don't have, again, the kind of history that we have, which we all know our country is not perfect, but we've come a pretty long way. A lot of these countries, they still have some very deeply seated um, prejudices uh, that they go by, and they don't even think about it. And that's never challenged until they become Christians. And then it's all of a sudden, it, there's an expectation that, like a light switch, that's over. And many are able to do that, because I think that's how God changes their life. Uh, but we just need to remind ourselves that sometimes things to us that look like, what's the big deal? Of course we're this way. It is, there is no of course we're this way when it comes to other countries. Uh, it's very, very different. And so, again, that's why you need to remember that the Bible is written for all mankind in all cultures across all time periods, not just written to Americans. Um, we all tend to view it that way, which would be normal. You know, for those who live in... South America, they tend, when they read the Bible, they read it in the, in the sense of their own culture. That's the normal thing to do. Uh, but to really understand the essence of what the Word of God is saying, we, you try to be as objective as possible. And then, and then along with that, you want to try to also think of it in terms of 
how it would sound uh, when it comes to other cultures that are very different than ours. Um, and so uh, this, this being knit together in love really was a big deal. And, and there's, there's some uh, evidence from history. Uh, there's a very popular quote. I can't remember the guy who said it, but it was a Roman historian. And in there, in, he's having correspondence with another Roman in another town. And the one guy was talking about his encounter with Christians. And he said that um, uh, even though he believed that what the Christians believed in was foolishness, he says, I was, I'm almost convinced because of how they love each other. Because he said he's never seen anything like that in his life, the kind of commitment they have. But then he goes ahead and adds, but of course I'm smarter than that than to be swayed. Like somehow their love for each other was a ploy to fool you. <laughs> uh, but again, it was noticed by those who were really enemies of Christianity. They recognized um, the way they love each other. And that kind of falls into place with what the scripture tells us. Uh, remember Jesus mentions in Matthew. Um, it's, it's a strange, I think, combination because it's not to us necessarily a logical connection. But he says that people will know that the Father sent the Son by how we love each other. Now, how do you get that from that? So if, if a foreigner sees that Reggie and I love each other's brothers, then when they see that, they go, oh, God must have sent Jesus. I don't see the connection. Uh, but that's what he says. And when you read various testimonies of the church as a whole, so remember that, that um, the witness of the church is both what we do individually and what we do together collectively. Uh, what we do to the, together collectively is not necessarily if we go out on a mission trip, though that's not excluded, but it is how we are with each other. That is a, it's an ongoing testimony to the world of the truth of the word of God, uh, because you will see the power of God um, being displayed, the power of God to change the hearts and minds of individuals uh, and, and the various things that go on in the relationships we have. So we need to make sure that we don't um, lose sight of that and make sure that we actually uh, want to kind of protect that idea um, even more, that we as, as, you know, what local churches should do is they should, be, they should pursue that uh, with each other. Uh, and there will be, even be some non-believers when they come in contact with that that will at times be, be moved in a sense with jealousy. In other words, I don't have that. I want to have that. And I, and I am convinced that in our culture, it may be, I may, I may, it may be just because I'm a product of our age, but I'm, but I'm thinking maybe more than ever that witness is necessary just because of how divided people are. Uh, you know, the idea of close relationships that are not sexual. You know, we live in a day and age, everything is sexual. Um, so, and that's, that's ruined um, a lot of things. You know, they, uh, I think that the kinds of friendships that men can have with each other is ruined by our culture. Because if two guys are close, next thing you know, oh yeah, they must be in love. Like, what? But, but that's how our world is. They make all those connections. But, they need to see, but people need to see this because we live in a time when people really are, with all the mass communication we have, are more lonely than ever before. Uh, and I do think that um, the uh, lockdowns that we had ended up proving the point just because of the great increase in the percentage of suicide attempts and suicides. Like, that, didn't, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right? People do that because they do not believe their life is worth living. They, they believe that um, it's better to be dead than to continue on through whatever maybe pain they're experiencing, 
And there'd be a list of things. That's not the only thing that an individual, uh, but there is a sense of hopelessness that's there, which all of that is very spiritual, right? Um, I, th I think we also need to do a better job in recognizing that when we speak of emotional issues that people have, that for the believer, what you should do in your mind is substitute the word spiritual. Emotional issues and spiritual issues are the same because we're dealing with the soul of man. Um, and so there is, I do not believe there's a division between um, our soul and what goes on either mentally or emotionally. There's a very strong connection. And if you are growing as a Christian, of course, I would never say that you're never going to experience any kind of mental problems because we're all, we're all marred by sin. But I do believe that there is a direct correlation between our, our maturing in Christ and our maturing emotionally and our maturing mentally. Um, we all will have maybe certain weaknesses um, and uh, uh, certain things that we may gravitate towards just because of how we are. But as believers, we are equipped to overcome those things. Uh, there's a, a guy that we don't have too many of his hymns. Uh, his, his last name is pronounced Cooper, but I think it, it's spelled C-O-W. It looks like Cowper. Um, but he was a, a man who struggled with, back in the, I think it was 1700s, 17 or 1600s, I forget. Anyway, he suffered with really severe depression, what I would call real depression. He suffered with that immensely um, as a Christian. And, uh, but there are many of his friends who understood that who continued to patiently encourage him with scripture. And he writes about that uh, in some of his writings about you know, working through that uh, and really the great difficulty that he had in overcoming it. Uh, but what's interesting is no matter how depressed he became, there's no record of him experiencing great despair. He was tempted to feel despair. He talks about overcoming that, uh, but he was almost at times, he was debilitated by it. It's, it's rare for that to happen. Um, I just think that today, it's, there's a lot of reasons why it seems to be common. And it's very clear that the medications people take make it worse. Um, but there's a definite um, connection there. So that's why I really think that Christians should be slow in taking those meds. Um, because if you're growing as a believer, you will, it's hard. No one's saying it's easy. All right, there's no easy way, for example, to overcome depression and anxiety. It's not easy. All right, so we don't want to ever pretend that it is. We don't want to pretend that it's never debilitating for some, because it can be. But we do have to remember that depression is an overused word, and you may have noticed this, that over the past 10 years, there's a word we don't hear very often. It's the word sad. It's an appropriate word. Many times we're not depressed. You're sad. It's a difference, huge difference. Um, uh, but the word depressed puts it in a, in a whole new realm and then suddenly everyone's afraid to talk to someone while they're you know, and it becomes an excuse sometimes for sin or they're depressed. What does that mean, they're depressed? All right, that, that God has created us and as believers, even when we, even, we know this is true, regardless of how we feel, even if it's depression, never gives us an excuse to not fulfill our responsibilities as a Christian. Now again, we're not saying that, we're not, that we don't struggle. We're not, we're not, we don't want to diminish that. At the same time, we're not looking for an excuse. We already have enough of those um, as, we, as we move on in life. And uh, so we live in very trying times where there's a, a view of the, of the human being that is based in a philosophy or ideology that is anti-Bible and anti-Christian. Yes? I just want to share a testimony. Mm, sure. 
Yeah. And I went through very, very, very heavy anxiety after I had Nathaniel. I think I was mm-hmm. nannying six kids. I had three kids of my own, two of babies. So mm. I just went through a ton of anxiety. And finally, and it, it would, would keep me from driving. Couldn't drive, couldn't mm-hmm. eat right. Would always think something was wrong. Um, so I went to a Bible study and, and really read a book called Overcoming Surgery and Anxiety. And mm-hmm. I And it's, it's a serious thing. There may, there may be a case, there may be cases where some can use those to help with those issues. But here's the main thing. If you go back to the beginning of when those medicines were being brought about, the main, I hate to say it this way, but the main selling point was, so the depression or anxiety is so bad, you take these meds and they will, they will help to create a bridge so then you can go through therapy and overcome. The problem is, is that they started to prescribe those things and the doctors no longer tried to create that bridge to help you to overcome the problem. It was just the pill. Um, and I got onto this subject years ago when I began to try to figure out what are the, what's the word, dangers facing Christians that aren't obvious, right? So for example, we all know, at least we should know, the obvious dangers of pornography on the Christian life. It's, very, it's easy to see, easy to talk about, it's just there. But now when it comes to other areas that are more socially accepted. So it began with the movement in the 70s uh, where psychology, when I say psychology, I normally mean humanistic psychology. So that's a psychology that is based on the fact that God doesn't exist or that God is not important. Um, now a secular psychologist would never say that but that is where their ideology comes from. That's what that is. You know, the, you never hear a secular psychologist say, well, I think that if you spent more time in prayer and read the Bible, that would help you. You're not going to get that from them. Unless you say, well, I feel better when I read the Bible. Then they will say, oh, by all means, then read more of it. <laughs> you know, they kind of go along with you there. Um, but there's a real danger there. But we also, the same t- as psychology became, took, made more inroads in, into the church, uh, we, in a sense, became a little softer and more accepting to where uh, there's so many things involved in this and you, and you don't want to, you don't want the wrong person to hear what you're saying and somehow think that you're just writing them off because you're not doing that. But the idea that we are to live life and we are, we are to experience, I think, we are to experience grief very deeply, we experience happiness very deeply, and everything else very deeply. So meds get in the way of that, just like alcohol gets in the way of that. And, but the way that we are able to experience those things deeply and experience in the way that God would have us to is when we are growing in our relationship with Christ. Um, and I think that as psychology has grown in the church, 
it has deeply affected our faith. Our faith in God, our faith in the Scripture, our faith in what God can do, and our faith in what God will do. Um, and it also affects the way we view life and what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. And it seems that more and more are not willing to go through the difficult times, which is required for, for growing in any aspect of life. Um, you know, remember when your kids learned to walk, no, none of our kids learned to walk and never fell down. They fall down. Sometimes it hurts. There's an expectation that they will eventually no longer fall. But the falling is a part of it. Um, and um, even what we do sometimes is when your kid starts to walk and they fall, you don't overreact and run over there and say, oh, my poor baby. Because if you do that, it'll take them longer to walk. <laughs> because next time, they're going to look at you and fall on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so you come over there. But anyway, so all that to say that as we go through all these things, uh, I think that the prayer that Paul is praying here, uh, there is a very intimate connection uh, with, with the inner man, with who you are as a person. So our, the condition of our, of our soul and our emotional health, all those things are very deeply connected uh, with each other. But at the same time, never think that anybody's ever saying that if you're growing as a believer, you will never have any emotional issues, because you will. We are human beings, create image of God, and that is, is uh, marred by sin. And so we're going to have those moments. I can tell you this, uh, if I, if I if, well, not if, I will, I'll do, I'll do a confession. So most people can't tell this, uh, but when I was growing up, and it continues to this day to one degree, I am extremely an insecure person. Now most people just laugh and think I'm lying to them. Uh, but I'm not. Uh, I'm very, very insecure. In fact, my very first sermon, um, which I think was a great thing, I was so insecure about being wrong on something that I read 28 commentaries on Romans chapter 28, on Romans chapter 8, to make sure that I didn't misrepresent what the scripture said. Now, to want to do that right is a good thing. But why 28 commentaries? Well, it's not, it, maybe it's OCD, maybe it's not. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, I was just so insecure uh, that I just was going to try to cross every T and dot every I to make sure there was no way that I was getting it wrong. Now, I believe that the Lord used that in a good way, that weakness, for me to study that way because I was driven to do that, and that was profitable for me. But I'm not telling people that when they teach the Word of God, they better read 28 commentaries on every passage or not open their mouth. I wouldn't do that. All right? So uh, there's always been insecurities around uh, people. I, I, have, I, I can talk to people all day long, but I do have a very difficult time meeting people when, it's, uh, when, when they're new. Like, I just, I make myself do it. Before, I just wouldn't even bother. You know, I'm the guy that goes to it, there would be a big party, I'm happy by myself in the corner. <laughs> I'm content. <laughs> you know, but if people come talk, I'm good with that too. You know, but for me to walk up to a group on my own is just kind of interject myself. Unless I know them really well, that's very difficult for me to do. Now, I don't hide behind that, all right? but there are people who are debilitated by their insecurities. Um, and so a lot of things that I've done my whole life really are driven by insecurities. So the Lord can take sometimes our weaknesses and use them for how he wants to mold us and shape us. So because I didn't go to Bible college, didn't go to seminary, didn't do all the rest, I do, you know, I need to study uh, because you just can't one day wake up and say, hmm, I think I'll start preaching uh, because you're handling the word of God. So to, to compensate and maybe overcompensate
because I don't have any kind of degree, then I would just read and then read and then read some more. But that was great. Um, not only A, I wanted to, I learned a lot that way, um, but, I, but I wasn't going to be taking the lazy way to just kind of, well, I'll just talk my way through it, and if it sounds good, we're all good. I want to make sure I was handling the Word of God accurately. So our insecurities or the weaknesses that we have definitely can be used by God, and they're never taken away. You may overcome them to a certain degree, but you will never completely overcome them, so you will always be dependent upon God uh, in many situations to be used by God. So then, if I'm not growing as I ought to be, the insecurities begin to grow again. Now, I don't go in a corner and start crying, if you feel sorry for myself, um, but, th but that's still there, okay? still a part of, of me, for whatever the reason. Um, so, so, I think a lot of us, maybe it's a lot of us, I don't know, but I, th I think a lot of us, we have certain weaknesses that we don't talk about with anybody. We may not even want to think about them. Okay? That's okay. God can help you to overcome that. Will he help you overcome it completely? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe some of it needs to stay because God uses that. It becomes uh, a, something that protects you. Right? So for me, I think that it has protected me from my, because I'm also, I can be lazy. I mean, I think, I think maybe you all struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with it a lot. My dad said, I work so hard at getting out of work that I would get more done if I just went ahead and did the work. And then, I had, you know, anyway. So the idea was, is that so then to offset that, my insecurities helped to drive some of the laziness away to kind of do the things that I, was, that I needed to do. Um, so, uh, and I noticed then as I grow as a believer, then uh, I don't gain more self-confidence, but I do gain more confidence in God and in his word and the truth of his word. The word also helps us shape the way that we think. Uh, if you've, you've heard me, if you've heard me teach for a while, you know that I believe that when we come to Christ, not only is it that what we think about changes, but even the way we think changes. Um, we, I've, I've seen it with the inmates when I worked with the inmates a lot, is I would see individuals become much more logical in their day-to-day -day thinking. It wasn't that they couldn't think logically, they could, but this didn't. But as they were exposed to just the Bible, even those who didn't become believers, they began to think differently in the way they would process information. It was an incredible thing to see. Uh, but then as the individual who's the believer, who has the Spirit of God living in him, um, as we feed ourselves the Word of God, you are going to become a different person uh, in subtle ways. It doesn't mean your personality will completely change, but it will change some because maybe all of us needed our personalities to change a little bit when we were non-believers to now. Um, and so as we mature in Christ, all those things happen. And then... Of course, when you think about it just as a whole, when it comes to any congregation or when I was working in the jail, a group of inmates, everybody has their own weaknesses, their own sins, all these different problems we have. How do you get all these people together with all these different problems and address all those things at the exact same time? Because the world says you can't do it. The world says, well, if, if you suffer from anxiety, we need someone who specializes in that. Um, if you have insecurities, you need to be in this group over here, um, and they continue on. Like in jail, it's like, well, the car thieves need help here. Petty theft, maybe you can go in that group. But those who sell heroin, they should be over here. And then you just kind of keep everything has to be, you know, separated. Well, how do you address all those things and help everybody at the same time? Well, that's who Christ is, and that's because it's the heart, and that's because there are there are certain motivations that everybody has, and the Bible addresses those. 
And as the man, as we change inwardly all those things, the desires of our heart change. And when the desires of our heart change, we become very different. Um, and so it's a fabulous thing uh, to see that. That's why um, oftentimes uh, when, uh, when people say, well, I, th I believe that my child has become a believer. Let's say your child's 12 years old. So when I talk to them, because um, I usually will not baptize them right away, I'm going to talk with them several times, but one of the questions I ask them, especially if they have siblings, is do you get along with your brother or your sister better now? And you can tell right away before they answer if they do, because it's on their face. And it's wonderful to hear them say, you know, when they start thinking about it, say, you know, yeah, I'm, I don't get as angry as I used to, or I don't get angry at all, or they kind of they kind of start going through different scenarios in their minds, and they can relate to you how they used to be and how they are now. And it doesn't mean that they're perfect and they never argue with them, because they do, um, but there's that difference. Uh, and for some of them, I've talked to a young man once when he was 16, and he said that uh, the first thing he noticed is that when he would argue with his brother and even pick on him, it never bothered him. He says, man, it bothers me now. And he says, I, I apologize to my brother. He says, the first few times I did it, I hated it because, you know, he's like, yeah, <laughs> you're sorry. And he says, I wanted to smack him again. <laughs> uh, but then he would apologize to his mom and to his dad. And, I, and then I would confirm that with the parents. I said, oh, yeah, we've been seeing these changes. And so you see the changes at home. That would be what's expected. Uh, that's the spirit of God working in the heart of that individual. If that individual, if nothing ever changes, um, it doesn't mean they're not saved, but it's suspect. Uh, now, as you know, there are some kids that, can't, that are sometimes really very good. Um, and so oftentimes the sins in their life are inward. Um, and so you have to find ways to kind of draw that out from them. But those who are saved, I think, you know, they come clean. They'll, they'll talk about that and whatnot. So all these things here, again, that I say we can sometimes take for granted, we should kind of take a step back and realize, A, everyone's not like us. B, everyone is not living in the same culture we live in. And the Word of God is profitable for every single person on the planet who reads the Word of God. Uh, and even if it's not new information for you, it may be those things that we need to be reminded of um, as, as God works in us. So again, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, uh, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So again, for him, for Paul, what he wanted them to get to was to have a greater understanding of who Christ is. Remember that Christ came to reveal to us the Father. He came to show us the way. He came to uh, help us to understand who God is, who we are, what that relationship is to be like, what God expects from us, the way that we can meet these expectations, what sin is, what judgment is, how we could overcome our sin, which by ourselves we know we can't, uh, that the way to the Father is through Christ and only by forgiveness. Uh, this is a great deal that's there that, that we need to understand that is in the person of Christ. And so that's what he wants them to come to uh, is this full assurance of understanding uh, and, again, the knowledge of God's mystery. And part of the mystery he's talking about, again, is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the perfect God-man. And, of course, in Christ, in verse 3, he says, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." So that doesn't mean that if you want to be a, a uh, chemist or a rocket engineer, um, that the only way to do that is to become a Christian. He's not saying that. But again, uh, remember that it says in Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And then in another place it says that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. And so that's the starting point. 
and that is where all of the presuppositions are formed. Presuppositions are things that we assume to be true. You can see that really clear uh, at times when you read uh, books by various individuals in science. Um, it doesn't mean that those individuals are dumb, because they're not. But if you, when you hear their conclusions at times, not about everything, you know, they get a lot of things right. Um, but uh, they, they are off. So for example, in our society, not everybody's on board with this, but there's a very large group of individuals who will say that, that following science is the way. It's the only way forward for all of mankind because science has discovered so many things. That part's true. Science has discovered many things. But where does that lead us? There's no ethics in science. Where's, where's the ethic in science? There's no ethic there. Ethic is what man brings to the table with him, so to speak. What, what, the ethic we would bring is what comes from the scripture. Uh, we begin with a very simple pre presupposition, and that is when it comes to who is man. Man is valuable because he's created the image of God, period. So the scientist, who's not a believer, doesn't begin with that. So that's why many of them will toy or maybe give in to the idea. Uh, one of the arguments we have had about um, uh, abortion and whatnot is what do you do with the pre-born person with the fetus when you, or the, the baby. There are those who talk about doing experiments on uh, these beings because they don't see them or value them as beings made in the image of God. They'll see them as non-persons. Uh, and there are, there have been in the past. It wasn't just stuff that was done in Germany and Japan and different places during the war. There are places, uh, very, very cultured places in the 1970s and 1980s that were doing experiments on babies that lived. They, the baby was aborted. They survived the abortion, and they were just taken to the back, and they would do experiments on them. I mean, that took place. It was hush-hush because people would freak out, uh, and it leaked out eventually. But there were some of those things that were going on. Why would people do that? Well, because they do not accept this idea which again, the, the fear of God, this is where everything begins, the knowledge he's given us uh, and, and the truth of the word of God, that all men are created in his image, therefore they have great value. That's why it's been the common thing through years, you do experiments on what? Animals, particularly ones we don't like, like rats. Uh, all right, but not the only ones. But the reason why we do those things is because they don't have a soul, man has a soul. Whenever they do uh, medical testing, what's the last group you always do it on? Human beings. And, you always, and there's supposed to be rules you follow. You, they give consent. Uh, it's supposed to be full knowledge and consent. That's not always done, but anyway, that's kind of the idea behind that. Why? Because there was even the borrowed idea <clears throat> among non-believers that all human life is valuable. Why? Because it's created in the image of God. It always goes back to that. Some, some will say it the wrong way. They say we're all children of God. But you know from John chapter 3, that's not true. We're not all children of God. We're all created by God. We're not all children. We have to become his child which is by faith in Christ. Um, uh, we are the enemies of God before that, but we're still created in the image of God. Um, and so there's a whole ethic that's there, uh, a, what we would call a Christian ethic, that's important to guide science along the way to keep them from the very inhumane things they did. And it is very true that a lot of the experiments that were done on people in Germany in World War II um, was based on the idea that all men are not in the image of God. And, and so if you read the propaganda that the Germans were given, it was that the Jewish people were what? Non-human or subhuman. That's what they did. Uh, if you read some of the car read, if you look at some of the cartoons that are made in uh, Islamic states in the Middle East today, 
when they have, when they show these cartoons on TV, and whenever there are Jews uh, uh, being represented in the cartoon, they're always presented as usually monkeys or some kind of animal because they're subhuman. And so then when you kill them, you're not killing a human being. You're killing someone who's subhuman, <coughs> someone who deserves to die. And so uh, these, many of these kids, that's what they're exposed to from the time that they're very young. Again, where does that come from? Well, that comes from a mind that's a rebellion to God. Uh, and so uh, all these things that he's talking about here really are very important. And it is in Christ uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are held. So Paul then says in verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So basically the idea is you don't, he doesn't want anyone to delude them and go in the direction away from that. That somehow that the way you're going to develop and grow is apart from Christ, apart from God, apart from this, this standard that he's setting before them. Uh, we can be deluded. One of my great fears in life has always been uh, to be an individual who was who fooled. And you all should know that the greatest uh, fear is when you're deluded and you don't know it. I mean, can you imagine? That when you don't know that you're being fooled, I mean, that's, that's besides being embarrassing, it's, it's dangerous. Um, there was a, uh, uh, a guy I knew once. I didn't, I didn't know him well. When I was a chaplain in Hawaii, uh, there was a guy that was arrested from Jamaica, um, and he was about four foot eight, four foot nine. He was a short little guy. So when he was arrested, they asked him his name, he said, and he said his name was Abraham Lincoln. So, you know, that could be unusual until they asked him when he was born. And he said he was born in 18, whatever year Abraham Lincoln was born, and said that he was raised in Illinois and that he became a lawyer and became president of the United States. Um, now, this guy was so, in a sense, convincing. We had a, an officer, a guard, who was from Canada. And whenever he pulled duty in the, in the area where this guy was, he took a Sharpie and he wrote on his hand, he is not Abraham Lincoln. Because you talk to this guy long enough, you can start to think, well, maybe he is. And no matter what question you asked him, he was ready with the answer. You say, wait a minute, I've read about Abraham Lincoln. The guy was like six foot four. And this guy was four, eight, four, nine. And he said, he said that just shows you how successful we were in, in, in the double that I had. We had this man pretend to be me, but I was the guy pulling the strings. And then you ask him, say, well, okay. But yeah, but you have to be like a couple hundred years old. He goes, well. He said, well, my double was assassinated. I escaped. And I went down to Florida. And like many others, I did find the fountain of youth. <laughs> this guy, he just went on and on with all this stuff. So, but here's the, here's the thing, all right? So, if you end up believing, if you, if you ended up believing he was Abraham Lincoln, what does that make you? You're dumb or foolish, okay? He believed he was Abraham Lincoln. What does that make him? Crazy. Right? A fool, crazy. So here's my thing with that, it was really important. You think you're a Christian when you're not. What does that make you? Well, it makes it worse than that. Because you're, 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 you're condemned to hell. See, so there's a fear. There should be a fear there. I don't want to be thinking I'm somebody I'm not. And so there are times when, now, I don't, I don't wake up thinking, oh, no, I've deluded myself. I'm not a Christian. I'm not, you know, that doesn't happen. 
But the idea is, is imagine the state of an individual who, who is so fooled by whatever the delusion is, they actually think they are whatever they are when everyone else knows they're not. And so we are fully capable. I read a secular book on um, those who were following Jim Jones way back before there was the mass suicide. And what blew me away, because I never really thought about the group that followed Jim Jones. And that was the group that South American, they all committed to drink the Kool-Aid. That's where that phrase comes from, don't drink the Kool-Aid. So what blew me away was that they said that members of that church, there were people who were doctors, lawyers. You're like, well, wait a minute. Because we would normally think doctors, lawyers, various professionals would think enough to recognize that this is nuts. They were fooled. I don't know all the workings of how, that's, how that happens. I've read some books on delusions and, and how just the regular individual can be deluded by different things. Uh, it was, there was not necessarily any brainwashing techniques, but there are, there are some manipulative things that are being done that people do naturally. But it's always eye-opening to see that. And so again, we have to be on our guard. So Paul is very concerned here uh, that they're not deluded. So the main thing is we don't have to worry about seeing some specialists to make sure we're not deluded. All you have to do is just stick with the truth, which is the word of God. And then that'll help you to recognize error. You know, I'm, you may have heard this before. A lot of older preachers used to use this illustration a lot. Uh, and I don't know if they still do this because I don't work in a bank. But I know that when it came to helping bank tellers to identify counterfeit notes, they did not teach them all, you know, the, the magnifying glass and look for all those things. You do that eventually. But what they did was they made them count real money every day, constantly. And then every now and then they would just throw in a fake note and they could tell instantly just by the feel. No matter how good the counterfeit is, you could tell instantly um, just by the feel. Um, and, and the way that you get to that point is you become so saturated with what the genuine is that you instantly recognize something that's different. And so for us, then it would be the word of God. So it's not a brainwashing thing. Uh, no one's saying there's a list of books you can't read. We will say there's books maybe you shouldn't read, but no one's saying you can't read them. Uh, we're not ever telling you that there's someone that you can't listen to. We'll tell you there's people maybe you shouldn't listen to, but no one's trying to, no, no one's trying to control you. But the idea is, is to saturate ourselves in the truth uh, and to know the truth and then to live by the truth and live out the truth. And if we do that, then um, because none of us can know all the errors that are going on in the world at the same time, uh, but we can hold on to this. And... Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's accurate, and it's, it will accomplish exactly what God intended to accomplish and what Paul was saying uh, that would accomplish. And so, that, but so he's praying for them. And again, the reason why he's praying for them is because uh, we're asking God, the Holy Spirit, working in conjunction with, God, with the Word of God, to form in us and to promote in us and bring about in us uh, the development of that new man that God has created in us because of faith in Christ. Uh, and so that, again, as we do this independence upon God, uh, so we're not just bringing an intellectual approach to the Bible, though you don't leave your mind somewhere else, but it's in, in uh, relation to God the Holy Spirit. So he says that I am with you in spirit, though, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he is actually looking forward to and expecting to see God answer this prayer in the affirmative. Um, 
he's looking forward. He wants to encourage them that, that this growth that he's praying for, there is an expectation that it's going to happen, that, that their, their lives will be in order as individuals, as a church will be in order, uh, and that their faith will be firm and be solid. It won't be as he wrote in Ephesians, where you're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Um, he's expecting not to see that, that despite the heresy that we had gone through before that was infiltrating the church, or at least trying to influence the church, he's expecting to see them not swayed by that, uh, but that they're standing firm on what the scripture says. Um, and so uh, we will end there, and we'll pick it up in verse 6 um, next time we get together. I think, I should have looked at my notes. I don't know if I covered anything that is in them, but nonetheless, <laughs> we, will, uh, we will move forward from there. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your graciousness and kindness. And Father, we thank you for Paul and for the words of Paul and for the concerns of Paul. Father, we ask you to help us to be students of your word to read your word on a regular basis, to think about it, to dwell upon it, to seek to apply it to our life and to the way we live. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would continue to work with us as we, as we seek to allow your word to change who we are, change the way we think, change what we think about, change how we respond to people, what we dwell on, this is how we live life. Father, you've promised us in your word that if we, if we live this way, in dependence upon you and on your word, not only will we experience great joy, our joy will be complete, our joy will be full. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one here who strives to live in a, in a way that honors you, that they will experience a great deal of joy. That along with that, you'll give them an understanding of life, an understanding of themselves, understanding of others. That, Lord, that you would help them as they mature, that, Father, they may be uh, filled with your wisdom, that, Father, not only that they themselves would make right decisions, but they'd be able to advise and help others in the same way. We pray, Lord, you would keep us safe as we go our separate ways and as we go home. We look forward, Father, to coming together on Sunday to worship you and to honor you and to encourage each other as we pray for each other and worship you as, as a congregation. We do thank you, Father, again for your love for us and for, again, your great patience. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.